Well, good morning. It's uh, wonderful to be with you here this morning. Jen and I have just been really blessed to worship with you and to sit under the teaching of God's word with you uh, as the Lord has led us here to Calvary. And so we're so thankful to be here. And, and I don't know about you, but uh, the message last week from Romans 10 and 11 really struck a chord with me. I don't, I don't know if you were here, uh, but even just to jog your memory, Pastor Kenny just reminded us from Romans 10 and 11 that we are called to preach the gospel to the people around us knowing two things. First of all, that that is the means that God has established by which people will be saved. And secondly, that the vast majority of people who hear the word will not receive it. They'll remain opposed to God. And, and the question that rang out in my heart as I heard that exhortation from Pastor Kenny last week is this. Will I speak and stand for Jesus faithfully even though many people, the majority of people, will vigorously oppose me? And I look at my own life and I'm conscious that there's a reluctance a hesitance sometimes to speak boldly for Christ. Maybe, maybe some of you can identify with that. And, and what makes us reluctant? What makes us hesitant sometimes to speak boldly for Christ? Well, I think it's what, part of it is what Pastor Kenny highlighted. That, that the people around us, they're, they're actually opposed to God. They're opposed to his righteousness. They're opposed to the, to the gospel message just like we were. We, we look at our relationships with the people we know, and we look around us, and we think about what would happen if, if we clearly proclaim what the Bible says about, about the state of man and sin, or about the coming judgment of Christ, right? Or, or the, one, the one and only way of salvation that comes by grace through faith to all who believe. It strikes us that if we speak boldly for Christ, it could cause a rift in our relationships. We, we could find ourselves excluded from social circles. We, we could even lose our jobs. And really, those uh, possibilities, they're not just reflective of like an overactive imagination. You know, Jesus warns us repeatedly that, that actually we should expect those things to happen. That's what we read about this morning, even just now. John 15. But what I want us to focus on this morning is this, that Jesus encourages us in the face of these trials, not by dismissing the possibility that they could happen, but by reframing how we ought to think of them when they do. One place he does that is Luke 6. I'd ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 6. We'll start in verse 20. If uh, you're using the Bible in front of you under the seat. It's page 862. And what I, I want to show you this morning is that in Luke 6, Jesus teaches his disciples how to interpret the trials that come from following Jesus in this world. So before we begin, let's pray. Would you, would you pray with me? Father God in heaven, we, we come here to hear from you. We're asking that you would speak to us through the scriptures this morning. 
I pray that you would bring this word home to the hearts of your people today so that we would be enabled to think rightly and respond appropriately to the challenges that we face as your disciples. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read together. Uh, Our attention this morning, we're going to start in verse 20, uh, but we'll read from verse 17. And the context is Jesus has just chosen 12 of his disciples to be apostles. And verse 17 says, He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to teach him, to touch him, sorry, for power came out from him and healed them all. And these are our verses. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So we pick up as Jesus has just called his disciples to him on the mountain, and uh, he chose 12 of them to be apostles. Uh, So there are 12 apostles, but there are many disciples, right? Uh, and, and the disciples are those who were following Jesus and seeking to obey him. So Jesus chose 12 disciples to be apostles, and he comes down the mountain with them to this level place, and uh, a great crowd of his disciples were there with him, it tells us in verse 17. And also a great multitude of people from all over the region. So this is the scene. You have the disciples, a great crowd of his disciples. They're seeking to obey Jesus and follow him. And you have a crowd of people who are sort of interested in being healed or interested in hearing what this sort of getting famous guy was saying. And after Jesus healed those who needed healing, verse 20 says that he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he teaches them. And what he teaches them is that they are to interpret the trials of obedience as a sign of blessing and the absence of them as a warning. I want to to note off the bat that Jesus is not explaining here how to be saved. That's not what this is about. Pastor Kenny faithfully reminded us the last two weeks, we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. There's no works that we can do. There is No condition that we meet, like, say, being poor, that qualifies us for heaven. It's it's not as if Jesus sort of tallies up your income like a tax return, and if you're below a certain threshold, then you get into heaven. That's not what he's saying here. When the Bible talks about 
blessing like this, it's describing desirable conditions. Being blessed is when your life is characterized by an abundance of goodness. The the circumstances of blessing are the circumstances that we, we long for. They're conditions of honor and esteem and happiness. And the striking thing in this passage is that Jesus describes four different conditions that normally we would consider to be bad conditions, sad conditions, and he says that they should be interpreted as signs of blessing. The first two go hand in hand. Look at verse 20 again. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Verse 21, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Now, we should be clear here. We don't want to mix up what Jesus is saying in this passage with what he said in a different occasion. Many of you are familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. It's recorded in Matthew 5, and in that occasion, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he talks about hunger. He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. But that's not what he says here. Right? It's, it's not blessed are the poor in spirit. Verse 20 said, blessed are you, disciples, who are poor. And it, it's not blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's blessed are you who hunger now. It's a, it's a different message. And Jesus is looking at his disciples Specifically, not the crowd, he's looking at his disciples and he's telling those who are poor and hungry that they should interpret their poverty and their hunger as a sign of blessing. That's a radical statement. It's one we need to hear if we want to be encouraged in the difficulties of life that come from following Jesus. What Jesus is saying here is that when you're willing to sacrifice financially because you want to obey Jesus, you should interpret it as a blessing because it's a sign that you have been radically changed. Let me say that again with a slight twist at the end. When you're willing to sacrifice financially because you want to obey Jesus, interpret it as a sign that you are a child of God. See, the poverty Jesus is talking about here, it's not from laziness. It's not from an illness or tragedy or sin. Because we know Jesus' disciples are, are not lazy. Those are the commands that they follow. And we know that illness and tragedy befall the people of the world as well as his disciples. That's nothing unique to them. No, the poverty Jesus is talking about is a poverty that's characteristic of Jesus' disciples in particular. And it comes from the fact that they're willing to obey Jesus, even when it means they, they must be content to live off the basics of life and be exposed to financial hardship. Again, being poor in this way is not the way to be saved. It's not how you become a child of God. It's a sign that you are one. And and to understand this, we need to think a little bit about what the Bible says about Christians. Why would they be poor? And we can think about even the people who are standing in front of Jesus. right? Some of them had left prosperous occupations to follow him. right? There's at least four of them, Peter and Andrew and James and John. 
Those men were fishermen. They had their own business. They were partners together. They had enough capital that they had a couple boats. But they encountered Jesus. And Jesus summoned them to come after me. And what did they do? Actually, it's the chapter before this one. Luke 5, it says, When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is why some of the people standing in front of Jesus, the disciples, were poor. Later in Luke, we'll read about Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Do you remember him? He'd made his fortune working for the oppressor of God's people. Uh, and, and then on the side, using his position to, to defraud them, to gain wealth. And then he meets Jesus, and Jesus comes to his house, and he decides he's going to follow Jesus and obey him. And he stands up and he announces that he's going to give away 50% of all his wealth to the poor, and he's going to repay fourfold anything that he's defrauded of, everyone, of anyone. And we don't know how much of his wealth comes from defrauding. I don't know, maybe let's say 10%. So he gives away 50% of his goods, and then he gives away 10 times 4, another 40% of his goods. Well, what kind of position is he in financially? You might say that he was poor. But it's not just giving up occupations and opportunities to follow Jesus that results in his disciples being poor. They give generously to support their brothers and sisters, fellow believers who are suffering. Luke goes on to write the book of Acts, and he highlights two times in the book of Acts that the, the disciples were selling their possessions and belongings and giving them to those who were in need. And Paul tells the story of the Macedonians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2. He talks about the Macedonians who, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. You see, this is characteristic of Christians. They're poor because they keep giving away their possessions. They made a conscious decision to store up for themselves treasure in heaven instead of treasure on earth. They give generously to support missionaries and teachers and the work of the church. But there's another reason why Disciples of Jesus are poor. We read about that actually in our passage. We we didn't cover those verses, but if you look down at verse 29, Jesus is talking about those who hate them and how to react to them. And it says, uh, the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic. And it says, uh, from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And this is another reason why Christians are poor, is that they're oppressed by the people of the world. And they, they're willing to let their possessions be plundered. In fact, Hebrews 10 verse 34 talks about how Christians joyfully accepted the plundering of their property since they knew that they themselves had a better possession, an abiding one. And so for all these reasons, the followers of Jesus are poorer and hungrier than they otherwise would have been. They sacrifice financially to follow Jesus. They find themselves in situations where money is tight 
because of the money they gave away and the opportunities that they gave up to follow Jesus and because of people who oppressed them. And this is the message of this passage in Luke 6. That the message is that they should interpret that poverty as a sign of blessing. That's what Jesus is saying to them. And the reason they should interpret their poverty in that way is because their willingness to give away the things of the world and to give up opportunities for worldly security and all of these things we've mentioned, those are evidence that they don't belong to the world. If they were of the world, they would act like the world. They're not children of the world. They're children of the kingdom. Theirs is the kingdom of God. And as children of the kingdom, they can trust that God will provide for their needs when they experience financial hardship. And they look forward to the day when they will be satisfied. They look forward to the day when King Jesus will host them at a great banquet in the land of milk and honey, and they will never thirst or hunger or lack anything ever again. And and Jesus' words come to us today. They instruct us. I've gotten to know some of your stories. Some of you have given up opportunities and given away your things to follow Jesus. You know, sometimes in our zeal to follow him, we just obeyed and perhaps even haven't considered the financial implications. But then we find ourselves in circumstances where money is tight as all those decisions of obedience, they add up over time. You had money sitting in your bank account, but you felt the Lord leading you to give it to someone in need or to support the work of the kingdom. And now something's happened to your house or to your car, and you don't have money to pay for it. You're in financial hardship. And appearances suggest that your situation is a sign that you're forsaken by God. Maybe now you're a little more hesitant to follow Jesus the way that you did before. Or or you and your spouse, they work less hours outside the home than you could because, you know, God calls you to invest in your children, in the church. You're managing each month, but the grocery bill is tight each week, especially with inflation. And you know, you you look at couples who both work high-paying jobs that take up all their time and attention, and their cars are sleek and their homes are trendy, they eat whatever they want, they have no financial troubles at all, and you think, am I missing out? Is God holding out on me? It looks like they're the ones who are blessed. But Jesus, his words come to us here and they say no. No, blessed are you disciples who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. He says, blessed are you disciples who are hungry now for you shall be satisfied. Your willingness to be in that situation of financial sacrifice is evidence of blessing of God. 
Because the reason why you obey Jesus, even though it means giving up security and opportunities and giving away possessions, is because you've been given a new heart. You've been changed. You have been saved. Your kingdom and your satisfaction aren't found in this world. You're waiting for them to be revealed in the kingdom that's coming. And if that weren't true of you, then you'd have to listen to Jesus' warning. Right? He says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. If you've never felt a pinch in your pocketbook because of decisions you've made to obey God, Jesus is warning you that your best life is now. What you're enjoying in this world is all the joy that's coming to you. And the only thing you have to look forward to is an eternity of hunger that is never satisfied. And we, we turn to the, the second half of verse 21. It says, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. So he's dealt with disciples in poverty, right? He's dealt with disciples in poverty. Now he's uh, dealing with those who are weeping. He's dealing with those who are weeping, who are mourning. And it's the same pattern, really. Uh, you who hunger now, uh, you'll be satisfied. You who weep now, you'll laugh. You'll laugh on that day and you'll laugh forevermore. And what Jesus is saying here is that when the sinful brokenness of the present world causes you to weep, you should interpret it as evidence that you'll be laughing in the world to come. Lord, and we ask the question again, why did Jesus' disciples weep in this world? Well, we, we do face trials, right? I mean, we go through personal difficulties and they cause us to mourn and, and weep. We, we're sensitive to them. And we're talking about some specific trials right now that come to us exclusively because we're Christians. We're facing some of these trials. And so that's unique to Christians. But there, there's a weeping that is more fundamental to God's people in this world. It's characteristic of believers, and it's absent in unbelievers. Disciples of Jesus weep over the sinful, sinful, broken state of the world and the sinful, broken people in it. We weep like the Apostle Paul because the people we love continue to reject the gospel. Right? Do you remember? He said he had great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart for the sake of his fellow countrymen, the Jews. And we look around us at our family members, our friends, our co-workers, and we weep because of the continued hardness, the unbelief, the refusal to receive Jesus as Lord that will eventually lead them to hell. And we weep because of all the sin that's committed all around us and is applauded around us. Like righteous Lot, that the Bible says was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. Right? He was looking around him at Sodom and Gomorrah, and we just look around ourselves here in, in Ottawa. The celebration of immorality, the pride, the, the gossip, the blatant drunkenness and drug use that's celebrated, the, 
the selfishness, the killing of the, the youngest and the oldest because they're not wanted or they're not useful. Companies putting profit over truth and, and individuals who are willing to embrace lies and the degradation of God's structure for society and for family just to fit in, to keep their heads from sticking out. Christians, followers of Jesus, were distressed in our souls because of those things. And we weep because of our own sin. Right? We're still living in this world where we have these temptations and inclinations that we're battling, and it causes us to grieve and mourn. And, and we weep because we know that the, those debilitating diseases and illnesses and injuries and, and death that are still present in this world are the result of sin and brokenness, ultimately. We, we weep like Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus when we're confronted with death. Because we, we know it's not just the circle of life. It, it's, death is not just nature taking its course. It's the curse of sin that still rears its head. And it cuts us off from the life that God intended. We weep. Christians weep. Followers of Jesus weep in this world. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you're blessed if you have eyes to see the brokenness of this world and, and mourn and weep because of it. You're blessed because the fact that you respond appropriately to the state of the world means you've been given new life by the Spirit of God. It's welling up within you. You're seeing the world as God sees it. And, and because you know that, you know that one day you'll be laughing with joy as he defeats all the sin and brokenness of this world and he puts it away and ushers you into a life where weeping will be no more, where he wipes away every tear from your eyes. But again, the warning comes, right? Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. If your life is characterized by this blissful, lighthearted indifference to the destiny of unbelievers and, the dis and, and, and you're, you're just sort of dismissive of the vileness of sin and the reality of death, Jesus warns you that the time for mourning will come and when it comes, you'll never laugh again. See, the pattern of the world is to shut off every thought of these realities. With One writer put it like this, shut it off with a continuous cycle of amusement, entertainment, and pleasure. Plug your ears and close your eyes and live it up. And Jesus says, woe to those who act as if it's a wonderful world and remain unmoved by the suffering and the wretchedness and ungodliness that, that mar the beauty that God created. But that brings us to the last and the longest of the blessings that Jesus pronounces. This is, this is a, a word of encouragement. But listen to what he says. Blessed, blessed are you when people hate you, 
When they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. When people hate you and oppose you because you have aligned yourself with Jesus, interpret it as evidence that you're being faithful to the purposes that God has for you. You know, there's this unspoken assumption that sort of floats around in some Christian circles and some Christian media that if we can just be winsome enough, if we can just sort of be kind enough and friendly enough, that people will receive our message and accept us. And, and we are called to be winsome and kind. We should do those things. But it's almost as if it's suggested that the measure of Christian faithfulness is when everybody likes us and receives us. But Jesus says, woe to us if that's true. He says, woe to you. When all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. If everyone likes us and speaks well of us, we should actually be concerned. We should be warned. It means we've succeeded at emulating the false prophets who would never say anything that would give anyone offense and only said the things that people wanted to hear. And Jesus says the response of the world to faithful Christians is that they, they hate us. They exclude us. They revile us. That means they insult us and censure us and disparage us. They regard our name as a synonym for evil and bigotry. And they view us as representing everything that's wrong with the world. And the striking thing is that Jesus says when that happens... You should rejoice because it shows you're following in the footsteps of the prophets. He compares his disciples, not the apostles, the disciples, to the prophets. These men are held up as the faithful proclaimers of God's word throughout the whole history of God's dealing with mankind. And we have an example of one, right? In, in Luke, right, we have John the Baptist. And we think about John the Baptist. What, what John the ba got John the Baptist killed? you remember? It's because he was saying to King Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Think about that for a moment. John's message, he, he was testifying specifically that Herod's definition and practice of marriage was contrary to the law of God. How should we expect it to be treated if, if we preach a similar message in 2022? And let's not forget that Jesus was a prophet as well. He was more than a prophet, that's for sure, but he wasn't less. And what did Jesus say about the reason why people hated him? He says it very explicitly in John chapter 7. Uh, that's having this discussion with his disciples. They didn't believe him, and they were sort of taunting him about going up to Jerusalem. And when he responded to his disciples, he said this. He said, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Why did people hate Jesus? 
Well, according to Jesus, it's because he testified about them that their works are evil. And brothers and sisters, here's the thing. And when we are faithful to Jesus, our words and our lives testify that the works of the people around us are are evil. When we tell them that Jesus is Lord, that he's the king and judge of the world, and that his definition of right and wrong applies to everyone, they hear us saying that what they've done and the way they think is wrong. And and when we share people the good news that Jesus came to die on the cross as a substitute for sinners, that he welcomes all the sinners who come to him to be saved, very quickly they hear us saying that they are sinners and that they need saving. And even when we simply hold ourselves back from plunging with them into the same sins of debauchery and drunkenness and sexual immorality or or even gossip or, or greed, we are testifying that they are breaking the law of God when they do those things. This is what Jesus meant when he told us that we're lights shining in darkness, light exposes sin. And Jesus reminds us that though light has come into the world, men have loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. They don't want to come into the light, Jesus says, for fear that their deeds would be exposed. And so to the extent that we are bearers of light, we are excluded, we are pushed away, we're driven out. We're hated, resented, mocked, and reviled, and people curse our name. And then this is when Jesus' words come to us. That's heavy. We feel the weight of it. But Jesus' words come to us and he says, when that happens, you should interpret it as blessing. It's evidence that we actually are lights. It's evidence that we are faithful to Jesus in in a world that opposes him. And the message from Jesus encourages us now in 2022 in two ways. It, it encourages those of us who are experiencing that kind of opposition right now. And that's some of you. You have coworkers who resent you. You have family members who revile you. You have neighbors who spurn your name as evil. You can think of groups of friends from whom you've been excluded. And they would have you believe that you're the scum of the earth, that you're a horrible person, that you're proud and bigoted and that you should be ashamed of yourself. And Jesus says, no. He says, no, you're blessed. You're in a desirable position. Your life is characterized by an abundance of good. Because God has made you to be his witness. God has conformed you to the image of his son to such a degree that they treat you the same way they treated him. And this encourages another way, encourages us another way as well. I want to come full circle this morning and call your minds back to Pastor Kenny's sermon last week. 
Right? We're reminded we're called to preach God's word faithfully to the people around us, knowing these two things, that, that that is the means by which some people will be saved, but also that most people will oppose and reject us. And I want you to see that Jesus' words here encourage us when we're face-to-face with an opportunity to speak God's word. Because we have this voice that's speaking in our ears saying, don't speak that truth because they'll be offended. Preserve the relationship. We know intuitively, even without Jesus' warning, that, that they're likely to resent us and exclude us and say all kinds of false and evil things about us if we confront them with that specific truth that they most need to hear. Things will get difficult for us if we say things like that. Maybe we could lose our job. We could be poorer as a result, maybe even hungry. There would likely be cause for mourning weeping, and probably we will be hated and rejected and reviled and denounced. But we need to hear Jesus' words here instead of that voice speaking in our ears. We need to hear Jesus' words and let let them encourage us in those moments. He says, blessed, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. We speak the truth and when opposition comes, we interpret it as a blessing. I think it's fitting to close by reading a passage from Acts chapter 5. Maybe you remember this story. Uh, The high priest rose up and arrested the apostles and put them in a public prison, and they were eventually brought before the council. Let's read what it says beginning in verse 27. It says, When they had brought them, they set them before the council, And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, he intervened. And we can pick up up again in verse 39. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy 
to suffer dishonor for the name. 